This is The Guardian. Hey, it's Laura Murphy-Oates. Just a quick note before we start. If you are a regular listener to Full Story, even if you're a new listener, I've got a favour to ask. I want to know what you think about the show, whether there's topics that you would like us to cover more or just something you think that we can improve. Your feedback could help us make an even better show. If you've got a few minutes to spare to answer some questions, go to theguardian.com forward slash podcast survey to find out more. That's theguardian.com forward slash podcast survey. Okay, thanks. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. The dust is beginning to settle on a landmark election, an election where Australians made their voices clear, voting overwhelmingly for the end of politics as usual. But the run-up to voting day would not have foreshadowed such a change in tides. And on that theme, off the top of your head, Can you tell me the price of a loaf of bread, a litre of petrol and a rapid antigen test? The campaign saw voters bombarded with gaffes, gotcha questions and empty political theatre. National unemployment rate at the moment, I think it's Uh, 5.4... Sorry, I'm not sure what it is. What's the current WPI? (laughs) (laughs) Google it, mate. I mean... So why were the media and the major parties so disconnected from what was happening on the ground? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about the end of political coverage as usual. It's Friday, the 27th of May. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabrielle. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So here we are, post-election. Lenore, in our election night episode of Full Story, you described the result as the biggest political realignment in Australia during your reporting life. Did you see it coming? No, not the extent of it. It was pretty clear from all our reporting during the campaign that the Teal Independents and the Greens in Brisbane were doing well. Our reporters, that's what they were bringing back to the newsroom. So, you know, I did think that they would do well, that there might be a Labor minority government. I guess I may have overestimated the extent to which Scott Morrison's appeal to the outer suburban seats would work. I don't think it worked that well at all. And I probably overestimated how many UAP preferences would flow back to the government. So I guess I saw the direction of what was coming. I just didn't see the extent. Well, I think your prediction from last week's episode is pretty close. Um, But Mike, yours wasn't. (laughs) Don't be mean to Mike. <laughs> if I remember rightly, I think what I said was it's always foolish to make predictions about election results and then I proceeded to prove that was true by making one. But there were some quite amazing results and the whole shift of the dial, not in any one direction towards one party, but the shift from sort of top-down politics to what you could broadly describe as grassroots politics, I think, is what happened in the election, and that's really fascinating. And we talked a little bit about the research we had before the election day, showing that the issues people cared about 
and eventually voted on were not the issues being asked about at the daily press conferences. Should we be reflecting on that, Lenore? To an extent, and I think there's a number of factors inside of that question. One of them is what the parties want to talk about. Mm. So the cost of living was both what voters wanted to talk about and what the parties wanted to talk about with their own sort of policies behind it. But then voters really wanted to talk about climate change and neither major party really did. They both really wanted to kind of neutralise that. It was a, Labor saw it as an advantage for them if they could keep the conversation on transformation for the economic good. The coalition wanted to sort of have a bit of a go at Labor over their policy, but not too much, and certainly didn't want us to scrutinise their policy very much because the coalition's policy was patently inadequate to achieve the targets that they'd set for themselves. It's always a challenge for the media to insert an issue into an election campaign when neither major party wants to talk about it. In this case, the Greens and the Teals really did and benefited from that. So that's one thing. And then your question also goes to another whole topic, which is how we cover election campaigns. And I think I wrote at the start of the election about the incredible contradiction in federal election coverage because elections are obviously deeply consequential for the future of the country, but they're conducted via these daily routines and rituals that are completely inane in the travelling media circus that goes around the country, you know, really just finding a different backdrop for the day's press conference. And that presents a problem for editors like me because... It's a lot of resource to send someone on those campaign buses for little return. You often don't even get a question in at those press conferences. Scott Morrison was pretty good at blocking questions from The Guardian, just not taking them. But if you're not there, then you're ceding the ground to usually, you know, not the most senior television reporters. And I think a phenomenon, which we might discuss in a minute in this election, was the extent to which those reporters tried to turn those press conferences into sort of performative moments where their questioning became the the story rather than any information that they got out of either leader. I don't want to push that too far because I think it's important to do persistent questioning to insist on answers, Mm. but I do think that that press pack pushed it too far on occasions. Mm. Uh, And there's another point about the um, sort of on the campaign trail coverage, which is that it inevitably ends up as covering the contest as a contest between two major parties Mm. and particularly between the two leaders of the parties. And there are like two things going on here which are playing into each other. One is the fracturing of the political system where we saw almost a third of the electorate did not vote for the two major parties. So there are many other areas of it to cover geographically. And then at the same time, of course, the media is fractured in in a kind of parallel way so that the mainstream media is not what it was. The TV nightmare news is not, is not what it was in campaigns of the past. And so there are all kinds of other outlets where people are getting their information online, of course, being the most obvious one, but also with smaller outlets like, you know, more recent arrivals on the scene like The Guardian and Crikey, perhaps you could name as well. What used to be this kind of two major dominant players in the election speaking to the dominant players in the media landscape every day no longer exists really and we need to, you know, work harder to reflect that change in in our own coverage. Mm. 
And two points on that. One was we did try very hard with our Anywhere But Canberra series to send reporters into electorates to get a sounding in the individual campaigns that we thought were going to decide the election. I think that was largely a, a successful exercise. But the other thing is I think a lot of the media really could not cope with the idea that there might be a serious challenge to the dominance of the major parties. Like they just could not wrap their heads around it. And there was that incredible campaign, largely from News Corp, to argue that if the Teals and the Greens, but they were mostly focused on the Teals, if they were going to win, if there was a hung parliament, that that would bring chaos. I think one commentator actually said it would be a direct threat to our national security and the most destructive or harmful or dangerous vote anybody could ever make. I mean, it was overblown to the point of ridiculous, whatever your view is of the Teals or their policies, it was just ridiculous. And I think really stemmed from an inability to even conceptualise of a democracy where there was anything other than just two major parties ruling the roost. And that's strange because, as we've discussed before, we've had examples of hung parliaments before that were very productive and effective. The Senate usually has a crossbench which is productive, effective. Democracies around the world, you know, have multi-party governments. And yet here many people in the media were just so locked into the idea that it had to be one or other of the two major parties that have dominated for so long that they just couldn't cope with the idea that there was something different possible. So that also goes to the uh, influence of the media on the result, which the most healthy thing I thought about the election was that people seem to have made decisions. They seem to have looked at the issues and come to their very own independent conclusions about how they wanted to vote without being overly influenced by misinformation or mm by just kind of mischievous coverage in, in mainstream media or biased coverage, you really frankly have to say, in various different ways. Like you could point to the case of Fowler, for example, where Daly defeated Christina Keneally and other seats around the country where Bridget Archer in Tasmania, for example, a very independent-minded candidate, did much better than some of her Liberal counterparts. And people kind of responded to actual candidates saying actual things that were not necessarily dictated by the party central office. It just felt like the electorate looked at the what was going on in their seat and made a conscious decision without reference to what the media were saying in most cases. And, mm. you know, you don't want to say we have no influence, but you don't also equally don't want people to be driven by mischievous reporting in the campaign. I mean, I think you're right, Mike. It was a triumph of authentic politicians delivering authentic ideas in their electorates over spin, slogan, substance, tricky electoral strategies. That surely should be a boon for the media. That's fantastic for us. We want to talk about authentic issues and policies rather than somehow trying to scrutinise a party through this kind of maze through this blind of, of strategies and sound bites that are kind of meaningless and impossible to actually analyse. So really, this shift in democracy should be a really great thing for political journalism. Mm. Research during the election showed us that aged care was one of the issues voters most cared about, but felt it didn't get the media attention it deserved. Are there other issues you felt could have been discussed more in this campaign, Lenore? I really wish that we had been more successful in injecting 
both the rental crisis and political accountability into the campaign more, particularly the rental crisis. You know, a third of Australians are renting and our rental affordability is worse than ever. And there's, you know, stories every day of families, working families that just can't find a house to rent and are having to live in tents. And that seems to me to be a pretty important issue. We wrote about it a lot in the campaign. The major parties really wanted to talk about housing rather than rental affordability, like people's ability to buy a house rather than rent a house. I would have liked to have gotten more purchase for those stories that we wrote about that. And the other issue, which was an issue but I felt was still a bit underplayed, was the issue of the federal ICAC and political accountability. You know, um, we ran the porcometer, so we were tracking discretionary spending in real time that both major parties were doing a lot of. And at one point asked about a federal ICAC, Scott Morrison actually just said he didn't think pork barrelling was bad at all. I mean, he really basically dismissed the whole issue as something that didn't matter. He said bureaucrats shouldn't tell politicians what to do, that you can't just hand government over to faceless officials and that that would be some kind of public autocracy. I mean, the idea that governments should be able to spend as much as they want on marginal electorates rather than safe seats for whatever they want with no scrutiny was completely shocking to me and I couldn't believe that that remark didn't attract more attention. But, you know, I think now because Labor and the Teals and the Greens are all so strong on a federal ICAC that we're going to get one. On a Malcolm Farr's podcast that he did for J&I during the election called Inside the Media Scrum, there was a really interesting interview he did with Laura Tingle and she was talking about how ridiculous the buses are and how it's got more ridiculous over time. And one thing I didn't realise, Lenore, is she said that on the bus sometimes the journalists didn't even know where they were going. That's often the case. It was often the case on election campaigns that I covered when I was in the press gallery. You'd get on the plane and look out the window and try and figure out which direction you were going by what the coastline looked like. (laughs) I remember we, we took off from Kevin Rudd's launch in 2007 and we had no idea where we were going, but we could see we were going north and then I could see that there were a whole lot of ships off the coast. I'm like, aha, I think we're landing in Gladstone and sure enough we were going to Dawson which was a seat that Labor very unexpectedly won in that election. It was also, just by the by, the day that Murph and I nearly got left behind in a cane field, but that's another whole story. (laughs) (laughs) Hope there were no snakes. It sort of was like that episode of West Wing for anyone who remembers. If that's the case, and as Mike already said, a third of voters didn't even vote for the major parties, is this kind of set up where big chunks of the media follow two leaders of major parties around for the whole election campaign? Is that dead? I think it should be dead. I have thought it was stupid and unhelpful for a really long time. The problem is that the one that I talked about at the beginning, that it's not really in our gift to kill it. And if that's where the leaders are, then that's the only place you can really ask questions of them. It's a not very effective questioning environment. It doesn't suit our needs or our ends very much. It suits the politicians' ends more in that they get a picture on the nightly news with, you know, a different type of factory hard hat, you know, backdrop. But it's kind of a ridiculous waste of time, energy and resources in my view. And I thought the really unfortunate thing in this election was that some of the set-piece events that usually happen where you can ask deeper, better questions didn't happen as much. So normally there are debates between most of the portfolio ministers and shadows at the National Press Club. There are only a few of them this time. Normally 
uh, both leaders appear at the press club for questioning. Only Anthony Albanese did that this time. Normally there's a debate at the press club. That didn't happen this time and the debates were of, shall we say, variable quality. (laughs) So, I mean, I agree with you that it's not really fit for purpose, but if the media just says, okay, we're not going, then, I mean, it, it would need to be a unanimous kind of decision or else you're just seeding the ground, you're seeding the questioning and the whole direction of the questioning to the few companies that do go on the buses. And I guess for us, we didn't go on the buses for most of the campaign. I did send Catherine Murphy and Sarah Martin out early-ish to do a piece on each of the leaders. But then by the last week, we thought, well, actually, we're going to send for the last week because we did want to try and get questions in because we felt that the quality of the questioning on some days was really not focusing on the issues that we believe were most important. I wonder if the parties will also slightly rethink their tactics in this respect because their interactions with the public were completely staged and not authentic. They were just kind of there to, as a backdrop to the pictures, particularly perhaps in Scott Morrison's case, or perhaps more accurately, he chose different scenarios to be pictured in, which were mostly male-dominated kind of hard hat, high-vis environments, factories. and. He did a lot of welding, didn't he? He did. (laughs) Without the glasses on. And Anthony Albanese tended to choose slightly what you might call softer environments, you know, childcare centres and so on, to em- obviously to emphasise the kind of policies that he wanted to talk about. But I wonder if in next time around, depending on who their candidates are, they might think about taking a little bit more risk and actually meeting some people in unscripted circumstances. I know that hasn't always worked well for Australian leaders in the past, but I wonder if they'll think that people are actually looking for something more authentic than just that than just that mm. um, picture backdrop. Yeah. They might, for a start, pick a candidate who's good at that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the other question is, given the proportion of the electorate that voted for neither major party, should debates be opened up a bit as well? Mm. That's another question I think that's worth thinking about. Mm, Definitely. And of all the debates, the Sky debate where voters ask the questions seemed to be covering most of the issues that voters cared about. Surprise, surprise. I thought that was, it was really interesting. I mean, the Sky debate was, I thought, really good. Mm. The swinging voters there asked about the issues that we had been trying desperately to sort of inject into the campaign and that hadn't really been covered by a lot of the media very much, like rental affordability and the NDIS and, you know, lots of, of issues. And in that forum, the leaders have to sort of answer in a respectful and considered way, unlike, say, the Channel 9 debate, which despite the efforts of the journalists who I think tried as best they could, the format was set up in such a way that it just turned up into a sort of shouting match that didn't help anyone understand anything. Hmm. And the takeout from those debates, as they always are, was like who has won between the two participants. Hmm. But in that case, you'd think probably the people who benefited from that Channel 9 debate were all the other candidates who weren't involved because it, it was just a sort of <laughs> emblematic of the kind of politics that people, Everyone doesn't as we've seen like. in, the, in the electorate, showed that they really didn't like, that kind of shouting that goes on at question time in Parliament, mm. they're sort of not listening to each other, not having a respectful, interesting conversation about actually things that matter to people and just kind of shouting at each other and trying to trying to score points. And no one could have taken anything productive away from that debate except that I don't want to vote for either of these parties. <laughs> 
I do think at this stage we need to put in one more plug for a debates commission to properly sort out how the debates are held during election campaigns. Mm. It's always an unedifying fight between the various broadcast media. I think the fact that there wasn't any debate on the national broadcaster is a great shame and I think the electorate was the poorer for it and I think it would be better if we as a profession tried to sort of nail them down before the campaign to doing those portfolio debates at the press club and to a certain number of debates and exactly where they would be because I think Scott Morrison in the end just got to sort of dictate the terms of those encounters. Anthony Albanese has said that he wants to unite people, he wants to have a more dignified debate. What's our role in that, Lenore? Oh, it's so exciting. I find this really exciting and interesting. I feel like we should be the place where there is considered discussion and consideration of progressive views. I mean, this electorate has seen the country really vote for progressive views and I'm interested in airing them and airing in a civilised and considered way, disagreements between elements of the progressive side of politics, all the way from the moderate Liberals who are now sort of finding their voice finally and saying actually they did think climate change was important all along and, you know, all the things that they weren't able to say when they were sort of locked in coalition government with the Nationals, all the way from them through the Labor Party and the Teal Independents and the Greens. I think we can have a considered discussion between all of those parties about issues that they all consider are important, but that where they might have differences on detail or differences on how quickly action should happen. And I'm really excited to find ways to report on that. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it's going to be really refreshing, isn't it, to talk about things like the environment, particularly is one the obvious one that springs to mind as a conversation between Labor and the Greens, for example, plus the independents who have obviously been elected on that platform of moving more quickly than Labor has. It's not a rigid ideological conversation where people are wedded to one idea or another. They don't have the baggage of the National Party holding them back. There's no limit on the ideas there except Labor's ambition to do more, which was curtailed for electoral reasons, I think it's fair to say, at this election. Mm. But there's no good reason why any good ideas that come forward should not be pursued on bringing down emissions and on other environmental policies. And that is going to be really fascinating how how Labor deals with that. Mm. I mean, I think it'll also be interesting to see whether Labor can look at what happened and move out of the two-party winner-takes-all sort of mindset and Anthony Albanese has said he wants to be inclusive. He will now govern in his own right, but I think he would be smart to consider and debate and discuss with the Teals and Greens as if they did have a balance of power position, maybe not as much as he would have in that circumstance, but to be respectful and listening and considering their ideas in order to sort of pursue and embed, if you like, this shift. I think it would be a great shame if the sort of animosity that has existed between Labor and the Greens was allowed to really bubble to the surface in an unproductive, uncivilised or angry way rather than in a sort of productive discussion. Albanese has talked about learning the lessons from the 2010 to 2013 Parliament, that mostly in terms of, you know, not getting into a terrible leadership situation like they did then, but I think also the way they interacted with the Greens then, I'm sure they will have taken lessons from that and you would hope would also 
be thinking about a constructive relationship rather than anything that is too hostile and, and ends up in a bit of debates even 10 years on about who was responsible for what. And I think I think there are elements of the media who predicted that this parliament would be chaotic, who would be very keen to seize on any actual sort of bit of disagreement or chaos as well. I mean, I think the parties who have been successful should be mindful of that. It's certainly something to hope for and look forward to, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. A sane debate on climate. Who knew? <laughs> How long have you been waiting for that? <laughs> oh, about 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. <laughs> Next, the marijuana-focused micro-party and a cold case of Irish history. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. I think there's rich pickings this week, but Lenore, what's stuck in your mind this week? I really loved a story that one of our Queensland reporters, Joe Hinchliffe, wrote about the uh, candidate for the legalised cannabis party for the Senate in Queensland. I mean, maybe I'm being prejudicial here, but he wasn't the sort of person I would imagine would be the legalised cannabis's Senate candidate. He's a criminal defence solicitor. He doesn't smoke pot. He plays golf. He's a member of the Noosa Yacht Club. Most of his friends are stockbrokers. And he was actually motivated to run because he defends lots of people who cultivate small amounts of marijuana for their own medicinal use, you know, for PTSD or arthritis or whatever else, and he feels like the legal system is really rigged against them and that it's a bad thing. So he ran for a sort of good reasons. But the really extraordinary thing is he gave Pauline Hanson a run for her money for that sixth Senate seat, and he did better than Clive Palmer. And he spent $10,000, and we think Clive Palmer spent something like $100 million around the country, and there is something very enticing about a defence solicitor who spends $10,000 because he believes in a cause and comes close to defeating populist parties, spending much more than that. Mike, what stuck in your mind this week? So I wanted to choose a story that has nothing to do with the election and almost nothing to do with Australia. But a good news story for once. So in 100 years ago, in June 1922, the Public Record Office in Ireland, in Dublin, was destroyed in the civil war there in a beautiful forecourts building in Dublin. And all their records were lost going back centuries to medieval times. And this is like one of the great, obviously, great disaster for researchers and, and others looking to read to Ireland's history. And... There's always been thought that they were irretrievably lost, but now they have both scoured the records of other libraries and institutions around Europe, in England and in, and in Northern Ireland to, to find copies of records that would have been held there once and digitally recreated others from scraps that were, that were saved from the, from the building and found an extraordinary number of these records that were believed to be lost. And they've also made this kind of digital recreation of the actual building that you'll be able to explore when it goes online fully in June, on the 27th of June. And all the new archives will be open access and free, freely searchable by the public. All is not lost. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you like today's show or our other shows on other days, I have a favour to ask you. As we rethink our coverage after the election, we want you to have your say in how we can better make podcasts for you. There'll be a survey in the show notes of today's episode. It'll only take two minutes to fill out and we would really appreciate it. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Coning. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Monday and we'll see you then. Have a great weekend in the meantime.